consider it one of the greatest upsets in professional football history. And I understand it might be a little too soon to talk about football upsets today, but we really are talking about pro football a long time ago. We're talking about January 12th. 1969, Super Bowl number three, featuring the Baltimore Colts, not the Indianapolis Colts, but the Baltimore Colts versus the New York Football Jets. And this was not just a contest of two juggernaut football programs. This was two quarterbacks going head-to-head -head with really different styles. On the left, you have the humble Johnny Unitas, and everybody expected the Colts to win. They had been in the tougher league. They had blown away their opponents, and they were playing against, you know who this guy is on the right? That is Joe Namath on the right. No, that's not Mark Sanchez. That is Joe Namath on the right, and uh, his nickname was Broadway Joe, and his style could not have been, or his lifestyle, no more divergent than Johnny Unitas than you could possibly imagine. I mean, here is Broadway Joe on the sideline in his kind of patented, uh, you know, kind of lovely coat there that you could say that he's got going on there. This is a picture of him in his apartment. I mean, look at that. I mean, the first thing you got to know is the 70s were not kind to interior design. Look at that carpet. In, in the backdrop for, for that. And he wrote an autobiography. It's titled, I Can't Wait Until Tomorrow Because I Get Better Looking Every Day. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic stuff. Flamboyant Joe Namath versus humble Johnny Unitas. Uh, David Brooks, New York Times columnist, says that this was not just an ordinary football contest, that this was not just a big upset in a particular game, that you were witnessing the crossing of a threshold, the passing of the baton, the shifting of one kind of era into another. He refers to the shift into the Joe Namath era as the big me culture, where you and I have an unprecedented sense of self-confidence. In order to illustrate this, let's look at some of the data. Gallup poll asked a simple question that I want you to answer with somebody near to you right now. Uh, turn to somebody next to you and answer this question. Are you an important person? Turn to somebody next to you and answer that question. Well, depending on how old you are, you might be answering this question differently. So they decided, for the purpose of this Gallup study, they decided to hone in on high school seniors who are not known for their high levels of humility. And they asked them, are you an important person? In 1950, 12% of high school seniors said that they were an important person. Fast forward to 2005, over 80% answered the same question in saying that they're an important person. You've got to ask yourself, what happened? Like, what happened over the course of two generations where you're asking the same question and people have the opposite response, that all of a sudden, all of us are now important people? Well, this is what David Brooks is referring to as the rise of the big me culture, and we just have a very different view of ourselves. 
Another illustration of this with kind of the study or the polling data has to do with math. So one of the things that they asked in this was, you know, are you good at math? Is America good at math? That kind of thing. Did you know that America ranks 25th in math amongst industrialized countries that we're actually, compared to our peers, not very good at, at math. But do you know what we do rank number one in? We rank number one in our ability to see ourselves as being really good at math. <laughs> so we're not very good at math as a country, but we think we're the best at math. And that just kind of defines the, the ethos, the atmosphere that we're in right now. And the way that Brooks talks about this is he says is that we're seeing a shift from eulogy virtues to what you might refer to as resume virtues. Resume virtues are the kinds of things that you would put down in a job application. They're your successes. They're your accomplishments. They're the things that you would want to publish or announce about yourself as opposed to eulogy virtues, which are the kinds of things that someone might say about you at your funeral. I'm a pastor. I go to a lot of funerals, and I can tell you this, there is nothing emptier than going to a funeral where they walk through somebody's life resume and there's no good eulogy behind it. All these successes, all these accomplishments, but no person to stand up and say, what a life well lived. She loved really well. There's a verse in the Bible that says, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to. And I think that that might be one of the most important antidotes to the spirit of our age. And so I want to introduce you this, this morning to somebody from the Bible. I want to introduce you to somebody who thinks really highly of himself, who, who is incre incredibly arrogant and self-absorbed and uh, has a high degree of confidence in himself. And so turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. We've got Bibles provided for you. Um, uh, and near your seats, we've got, hopefully some of you are bringing your Bibles and marking up your Bibles to be able to kind of take notes for yourself in them. And this is a story that Jesus told. It's a parable. So Jesus did a lot of teaching in parables, but there's something that's really distinct about this particular parable. In this parable, Jesus tells a story that's not in the setting of the way that he typically does it. When Jesus tells a parable, it's usually in a commonplace, like uh, a, a town marketplace, or it takes place in somebody's home, or on a farm, or uh, at, at a party. These are the common stories that Jesus told. This is the only story that Jesus tells that takes place in a sacred space. This is the only story that Jesus will go to the temple, but this is the only story that Jesus tells that takes place at the temple. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Do you see the resume that he's putting before God here? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, 
but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So two guys, a Pharisee and a tax collector, walk into a church. It sounds like Jesus is telling kind of the beginning of a joke, and there's this huge variance, this huge gap between these two particular guys. I mean, they couldn't be any more different from one another. Pharisees were, um, were admired people in the day and the age of Jesus. Tax collectors were despised. Uh, Pharisees were considered to be devout. Uh, tax collectors were considered to be sellouts. Pharisees were considered to be righteous before God and as ambassadors of God's people. And tax collectors were considered to be in cahoots with the Roman government of this occupying force that was oppressing them. Two different guys, two very different ways of life. And they both walk into the temple to pray. Now, you would expect the prayer to be the great leveler. One of the things that we mention here at the church when we do the invitation at the end of the service, we'll often say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that we often say that, that prayer, that coming to church, that, that before God, all of us are equal, that in prayer, all of us are beginners, in fact. Well, instead of that being the case here, this religious leader, this Pharisee, walks into the temple and he's like, God, I almost don't know how you do it. I don't know how you put up with all these people. I mean, there's this person, you know about him, and then, then there's her, we know about her, and then there's that guy, and oh, uh, of course, and then there's this tax collector. Honestly, God, I don't know how you do it. You're, you're amazing, because I, I wouldn't put up with it. This is basically his approach to prayer. And although you might not utter it, um, although you might not say these words out loud, would it be safe to admit that his spirit of judging and his spirit of comparing is something that we all struggle with? There's the modern-day parable that's often told of the two boys who are walking in the woods. They're walking along by a stream, and they want to find the source of the stream, and they notice that the stream is actually emanating from a cave. So the only way to go into it is to remove their shoes and to wade through the stream in the cave to see if they can get into it. They've got their flashlights with them. They get into the cave, and they discover that while they're in the cave that there's a bear in the cave and that the bear is hibernating. They try to sneak out without waking up the bear, but they accidentally wake up the bear. The bear is a roused. He's grumpy from being woken up from a long nap. He hasn't eaten in a while. He's hungry, so the bear roars. The boys are running out of the cave, and as they get to the place where they left their shoes, one of the boys reaches down to put his sneakers back on, and the other one's like, what are you doing? We don't have time for this. Don't put those shoes on. We got to outrun that bear. Outrun the bear, the boy says. I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. They even sell you know, kind of mugs for this parable in today's day and age. Caution, never hike alone in bear country. Always hike with someone you can outrun. This is how we think in a hyper-competitive, comparing kind of age. 
And in order to justify ourselves, in order to feel better about ourselves, our tendency is to put ourselves on a little pedestal, and as we look at others and as we compare, to look down at them. If you ever want to know the cue for how to understand a parable, look at the preamble, what Jesus tells at the beginning of this story, what Luke tells us, to some who were confident in their own righteousness— insert the word justification there, justifying themselves, and look down on everyone else. This is why Jesus told this story, because He knows that we struggle with the big me kind of identity, that we have an inordinate view of ourselves, our own importance, And so, Jesus says that this Pharisee who says, thank God I'm not like these other people, one of the the dangers of reading this story is you might kind of close your Bible and say, whew, well, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee in Jesus' story. You might actually be naming the very thing that the story condemns. I actually don't think that anybody wants to become a Pharisee. I actually don't think that there are parents out there that are like, we're going to send our little girl to private school so she can become a Pharisee. Or I don't think somebody, when she's a student and she's younger and she's like, oh, you know what I want to be when I grow up? I want to be judgmental and hypocritical just like a Pharisee. I actually don't think anybody aspires to that. So how does it happen? How does somebody become like the Pharisee? I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says it like this. Imagine yourself moving into a house with a huge picture window overlooking a grand view across a wide expanse of water enclosed by a range of snow-capped mountains. You have a ringside seat before wild storms and cloud formations, the entire spectrum of sun-illuminated colors in the rocks and the trees and the wildflowers and the water. You are captivated by the view. Several times a day, you interrupt your work, stand before this window to take in the majesty and the beauty, thrilled with the botanical and meteorological fireworks. One afternoon, you notice some bird droppings on the window glass. You get a bucket of water and a towel and clean it. A couple days later, a rainstorm leaves the window streaked, and the bucket comes out again. Another day, the visitors come with a tribe of small, dirty-fingered children, and the moment they leave, you see all the smudge marks on the glass. They are hardly out the door before you have the bucket out. You are so proud of that window. It's such a large window, but it's incredible how many different ways foreign objects can attach themselves to that window, obscuring the vision, distracting from the contemplative beauty. Keeping that window clean develops into an obsessive compulsive neurosis for you. You accumulate ladders and buckets and squeegees. You construct scaffolding both inside and out to make it possible to get to all the difficult corners and heights. You have the cleanest window in North America, but it's now been years years since you've looked through it, and in that moment, you've become a Pharisee. Do you think that can happen to a church? Do you think that can happen to you? 
Are you focused on window management? Or are you looking through the window to the grace and the goodness and the grandeur of Almighty God? This is what the Pharisee does. He's focused on the window. And in contrast to that, Jesus sets up this hated tax collector who comes into the temple. He won't even look up. He's so ashamed of himself. And instead of saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people, you know what his prayer is? He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when Jesus tells the story, he uses a particular term. Do you remember at the beginning of this message when I told you that Jesus, this is the only time that he tells a story in the sacred space, that he tells a story that takes place in the temple? When Jesus tells the story, he uses a particular word that is a temple word. In other words, when, when he says, have mercy on me, the word that he uses for mercy there is not the common ordinary word for like, God, be kind to me, or God, be gracious to me, or God, look favorably upon me, or, or, or God, help me out here. No, 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 no. He uses a very specific word that means atonement. It's the word helaskomai. And the most literal translation of what he says is, God, make a sacrifice for me. Don't miss this. Here is a wealthy tax collector who could afford to pay for any sacrifice that he wanted, not just the little birds, not just a medium-sized animal. He could bid the big animals and all the different sacrifices that he could pay for. He could afford all of that, but he knows that it won't be enough. And so he comes into church and instead of buying a sacrifice, he says, Lord, I need you to be the sacrifice for me. And did you notice that small detail where he's beating his chest? You need to know that in the ancient world that men did not beat their chests in grief, that that was almost an exclusively feminine response. And the only time that we see the beating of chess in the, Old, in the New Testament other than this one, the only other time is when the crowds are beating their chests in grief in response to Jesus hanging on the cross. He's in temple. God, make a sacrifice for me. God, make a sacrifice for me. God, make a sacrifice for me. I'm a sinner. And so I love how Tim Keller puts it. He puts it like this, summarizes it like this. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, and yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Do you want that kind of freedom for yourself? That you're not always trying to constantly prop up yourself and to put yourself up on your own pedestal and, and kind of you know, stack up your own ego. And at the same time, you're also not wallowing in sadness, depression, or in false humility. Instead, you just don't think of yourself very much because you're not in the way. This is true 
humility. And I firmly believe that the gospel is the only thing that gives that kind of humility. Jesus' punchline, the way that he describes it is this, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all of those who humble themselves will be exalted. Several years ago, uh, Pastor Jay and I went on your behalf down to Costa Rica, and in Costa Rica, there is unrivaled, majestic, natural beauty. And at the same time, there is also horrible levels of poverty and particularly trash, trash upon trash. This is an actual photo of a trash heap in Costa Rica that's a part of a waterway. It's horrible. I met a man down there by the name of Roy. This is him. Roy had a fantastic job with Coca-Cola in that country. He was in a bar one night when he felt the tug of the Holy Spirit. He felt that God whispering into his heart that he needed to start a community. He had a great lifestyle. He was terrified to tell his wife, but he went home to tell his wife what he felt like that God was telling him. And his wife stopped him midstream and said, I felt it too. I heard it as well. It's what we're supposed to do. And so they relocated to this particular area. And uh, in this particular area, he's like, I want to start a church. I want to start a fellowship here. And he thought, no better way to do this than to connect with some other ministry leaders and other Christians. And so he went to go see one of the religious leaders in that area who uh, was a priest, and he said, you know, hey, what are the needs of this area? What, what do you think we could do together? What could I do, and what could we do uniquely in our church? And the priest looked at him and said, you know what you can do? You can pick up trash, and after you're done picking up trash, you can put yourself into the garbage bag, because that's what you are. You're nothing more than trash. And at first, Roy was kind of offended, kind of mad by what he said, he was incredibly disappointed that another Christian leader would say this to him, shocked. And then he felt the Holy Spirit whisper into his heart. He said, the priest is wrong. You are not trash, but the priest is right. That's what I'm calling you to do. This is 20 years ago, four people, Pastor Roy, his wife, and one other couple, they go to the stream where there's a whole lot of trash, It's a stream that eventually feeds 250,000 people, and they start to pick up the trash. People in the town are kind of looking at them. What are they doing? Watching for a while. And over time, over the years, people started joining them. 60% of that community now is a part of Roy's church. And you know what they never stop doing? They never stop picking up trash. You know how we got connected to Pastor Roy? Another part of Costa Rica, we're picking up trash. He's got a team of people, they're picking up trash. It's kind of like two groups of Christians picking up trash. Hey, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? I'm picking up trash. What are you doing? We're picking up trash. Why are you picking up trash? Jesus, what are you picking up trash? Jesus, cool, let's get together. 
And that's how the partnership with Pastor Roy and his church started. One of the greatest needs that they have in their community is for sustainable uh, jobs and to be able to provide nourishment for people. So one of the ways that we partner with them, these are actual strawberries. This is a picture I took of some of the strawberries that were picked um, uh, while, while we were down there. Makes me a little hungry looking at those strawberries right now. But it makes me even hungrier for the joy, the passion of them taking their church property and planting on it so that families within their community would have work. The name of the village where they are is called Frijanas, which in Spanish means Friar James, James, the brother of Jesus, who said, be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. They look at themselves and then they turn away and then they immediately forget what they were like. Jesus, he said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but really they're like ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. What does the fruit of your life look like? Does it look more like a resume? Or does it look more like a eulogy? Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. What's it going to be for you? Let's put up the contrasts up on the screen. Are you more like Namath or are you more like Unitas? Are you spending all of your time and your energy and your devotion on your resume or on what others might say about you at your funeral? Are you trying to outrun others or are you trying to serve them? In your life with God, are you focused on the window or on the scenery of His grace? And are you all about the big me or the really great God? If you don't hear anything else, hear this. I don't believe that you can look up in praise to Almighty God and fix upon His goodness, His love, His grace, and do that genuinely and look down on the people around you. And so you have a choice. You have a choice as to whether you're going to get swept up into the big me culture or whether you and I are going to demonstrate the fruit of the gospel in a age that is desperately hungry for humility. Let's pray together. God, you might consider this story to be one of the greatest upsets in history that a tax collector 
would be seen as righteous before you instead of a Pharisee. Lord, forgive us for our own self-inflated importance. Forgive us for having tremendous faith in ourselves instead of in you. Lord, there might even be those of us who have come to church today not out of a sense of worship or service, but to come to church to feel better about ourselves. And so forgive us when we bring our resumes disguised as prayers. When we thank you that we're not like others. And so help us, Holy Spirit, help us to not constantly compare ourselves to others. Teach us how to not be a Pharisee, to admit our own sinfulness, our own brokenness. And will you make the sacrifice for us? Help us to think of ourselves less and to know that we're not garbage, but that nothing is beneath us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.